0: You're listening to Atomic Moms. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, everybody. We are surviving hand, foot, and mouth virus at my house. Last week, you heard our episode about like what to do when the kids get sick. <laughs> oh, it hit us hard. I, despite my best, purelling and separating of the children and everything else, Sabrina did come down with her two-year-old sister's virus. So it's been two weeks of no school at the Steekels, and this episode. And conversation with Dan Kois could not have come at a better moment. When the publishers sent me this book, I the introduction, I couldn't get over because it was about how his family was falling apart because of a snowstorm that had, you know, overtaken DC and the kids weren't in school for a week and they all wanted to kill each other. And I was experiencing a very similar thing in my own house with my children and trying to get my work done. And you realize how it's all a house of cards. Our guest today is he's a delight. <laughs> he is an editor at Slate, founding host of the podcast Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. He's coming on the podcast to talk about his new book, How to Be a Family. The Year I Dragged My Kids Around the World to Find a New Way to Be Together. It is published by Little Brown, and it was published on September 17th, 2019, so just last week. He and his wife and his two daughters, age 11 and 9, pack up their house in suburban D.C. and spend three months living in four vastly different locations, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Costa Rica, and Kansas. And he's coming on the podcast today to share what he's learned. A quick note before we start this conversation, number one, we swear in this episode, and do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you appreciate this podcast. Seriously, everyone says it all the time. I know it's white noise. Don't make me do like an NPR drive for this. I just need you guys to please rate, review, subscribe, share with friends and family. It's an independent podcast. We've been doing it since 2014, and I love it, and I want to share it. And if you hear a sponsor in this episode, check them out. That helps us as well. Okay, enough of my tap dancing. Now it's time for Dan to do some. I'll be right back with Dan Koyce. But first, here's a moment from his new book, How to Be a Family, the year I dragged my kids around the world to find a new way to be together.
1: I think we should just do it, I said. I think we should like get the hell out of our parenting bubble. In the background of the phone call, I heard Lyra and Harper shouting at each other about some bullshit. I have to go, Alia said. I have to finish this brief and get them to not kill each other. So, you know, I'm in.
0: Dan, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. Why is your Skype profile pic so grumpy looking? You're, like you're staring me down right now.
1: I just want to make sure that anyone who calls me really looks deep into their own soul before they ask me a question.
0: (laughs) It's very intimidating. And luckily, I read your book over the past week, so uh, I'm not thrown by it. (laughs) You know, it's all bluster. It's all bluster. You're a big softy. And I really appreciated that in the book because it seems to me that... Making connections is so important to you and a sense of community and even like the little tidbits that you share throughout the book about friends helping you out. I was like, this is a seems, I mean, I don't know you and by your profile pic, I wouldn't judge this, but you seem to be like a really kind, outstanding guy. So thank you for taking the time to not only share your experience with your family, uh, with all of us through your book, but also to be on the podcast today.
1: Uh, my pleasure. What a great way to start things out. You're really buttering me up. I love it.
0: <laughs> well, I only have people on that I'm super excited about. That's one of the fun things about having an independent podcast is I get to pick and choose like who gets me excited to come in here. Because as you know very well, parenting is so difficult these days. And so I need it to be important for me. The past couple weeks, my daughters have had hand, foot, mouth virus, so they've been out of school, and it's been a total disaster, and I'm hoping that you could share with our listeners sort of the inciting incident of this journey that you went on with your family and how in America just, it's like one little thing goes off, and then the whole family scheme falls apart. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it sounds like you really have had that for the last two weeks. I'm very sorry. That sounds just shitty. Uh, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to. It's super shitty. And yeah, our inciting incident, you know, among our inciting incidents, the big thing that really sent us off, off the edge of the cliff was one of those moments like that. I, I I think I refer to it in the book as like realizing that our family was like the American air traffic control system, where like on a good day it works. But, like, if there's a thunderstorm in Topeka, flights to LaGuardia are delayed for two days. Uh, It's like it just takes the littlest thing, as you say, to, like, send the whole machine careening off a cliff. Um, And for us, the one little thing was uh, uh, the snowstorm that hit in Washington, D.C. I live in Arlington, Virginia, just outside Washington. And the snowstorm hit in uh, January of 2016. And my wife, was, who's an attorney, was working on a big case. And so she was really swamped. And I was really swamped with my job. I'm an editor at the online magazine Slate. And our kids were just, you know, our normal kids, which is to say that they were extremely needy, yet also (laughs) totally dismissive of anything we would ever say. And um, the snowstorm hit and the kids were off school for 10 days. And our family just basically, like, collapsed, like... We we couldn't get any work done, and our kids were miserable and unhappy, and we were miserable and unhappy, and we, like, let down everyone we worked with. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, like, there wasn't, like, a glorious resolution. It was just like we then were, we just fell 10 days behind for the rest of the spring. And what really struck me about that time was not only just how difficult it was, which I think is familiar to many parents, but how we we did not in a moment of crisis for our family band together as a foursome and find our way through that crisis. Instead, we just like all yelled at each other and were angry and like did not work as a team in any way, even though I've always sort of thought of our family as a team. And, and it really, it really brought to light to me how much it seemed like The four members of our family sort of each trying to get through all the shit that we needed to get through in a day um, were just sort of pursuing these like parallel independent paths and that that just intersected way less often than I wanted them to. Um, It was very rare that we were like working on something together or trying to solve a problem together. Um, We were just sort of all in our little worlds. And so... The experience of that snowstorm was still very fresh in my mind a couple of weeks later, when, much to my wife's delight, as we were still way behind in our family, <laughs> uh, I flew to Iceland for a week to report a story. From the New I would have killed
0: you. I would have killed you. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, she <laughs> I this that was definitely one of those trips where you don't send back photos. I would just be like, oh, it's terrible. I'm working so hard. In this swimming pool, because the piece was about <laughs> the municipal swimming pools of Iceland, um, the role that they play in Icelandic culture and society, the way that they function as sort of um, village greens in a country where it's too cold to have a real village green. And what I kept seeing there was were these amazing f- Icelandic families for whom sort of the a lot of their day-to-day life revolved around these pools. They would um, go to the pools during the day on a weekend. And that's where kids and parents would connect. That's where kids and grandparents or sort of other elders in the town would get to know each other. It's where kids' sort of social adventures took place. You know, it's a lot of, like, sort of dating and flirting happened there. Um, and then I just saw this amazing thing where parents with little kids would have this ritual where every night at, like, 7.30... You would like after dinner, you would bundle your kids up in the freezing cold and take them to the pool and then drop them in a hot tub for like 10 minutes and then take them out and take them home. And like their bodies would all still be all warm and snuggly. And then you would put them to bed and they would fall asleep in like three seconds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was just very striking to me how this like very simple municipal investment in Iceland had paid these enormous dividends in terms of creating satisfaction and happiness in the entire population, but particularly in creating a certain kind of cozy togetherness in all the families I met that seemed very anomalous to me in my family, which was completely lacking cozy togetherness. <laughs> and it was it was just very notable to me that all this country had to do was create this thing and mm-hmm. family life sort of you know, grew around it in a really interesting way. And and I realized, oh, well, there must be things like this in every country. There must obviously be other ways of being a family than our crazy East Coast overworked insane way of being a family. And so I called my wife from Iceland and, you know, we had always sort of tossed around this pipe dream idea of what if we just like chucked it all and traveled around for a year and just tried out life somewhere else. And I said, what if We actually really did this and we tried to figure out what we could change and what we could learn from other places. And we also just like got away from what is currently driving us crazy for a while. And at the exact moment that I called her, our kids were being just awful. So she was like, yes, I'm in.
0: (laughs) When you guys take off for New Zealand first, what surprised you most about your experience in that country?
1: Yeah, New Zealand was the first place we went. We ended up going to four places over the course of that year. And in New Zealand, we were, I mean, we were instantly, I mean, like on the first day, surprised by how totally outgoing and friendly pretty much everyone we met was. You know, we immediately made friends with a bunch of people in our neighborhood our kids immediately made friends with a bunch of people in their schools and around town. And people were very eager to talk to us ab- about their family lives and to talk about what the the things that New Zealand family life made possible. People, I mean, it was a subject people were very enthusiastic about. And so, you know, unlike in some other places where it was much harder to make friends.
0: The, in the Netherlands.
1: In the, like the Netherlands, for example. <laughs> Kiwis were just very excited about the idea of meeting us and getting to know us and having a beer with us and talking about the stuff that we wanted to talk about. Like they were, I mean, I think they just sort of just wanted to brag about how well everything was working there. But it wasn't even our neighbors. Like three days into our, three days after we arrived in Wellington, the city where we lived, I like went on the radio. Radio New Zealand invited me on to talk about the trip. And then at the end of the radio interview, I just flat out said, like, hey, we need friends. If you want to be our friend, please email me at danquiz at gmail.com. And, uh, like, 10 people emailed us and became our friends.
0: Yeah, and you guys would have these block parties that sounded like a blast. And it seemed from reading this that they really put an emphasis on sports, but also just outdoor activities. And I want to ask you about sort of the pushback to exceptionalism that you found not only in New Zealand, but also in the Netherlands. And what seemed to me like this big question for you about, you know, should, where is the balance between pushing our children towards greatness. And maybe even, you know, my using the word pushing is a telltale sign of how I where was you, raised. Where you
1: land on this question. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, you know, this idea that it's more about community. Because from what I read, it seemed like the people that you met in New Zealand, you know, their emphasis was on community and experience and much less on individualism And in that, that was even frowned upon. Can you talk a little bit about the tall poppy syndrome and like what your own gut feeling was about all this?
1: Tall poppy syndrome is funny. That was, um, that was not a concept I was that familiar with before going on this trip. And then in both New Zealand and the Netherlands, people would tell me about it as if it was invented in their country. (laughs) And, you know, for those who don't know, That is, and maybe you've talked about this before on your podcast, Mm -hmm. it's this sort of aphoristic idea of a community or a society that that when one poppy in a field grows taller than the rest, right? When one person achieves greater than anyone else, you cut the head of that poppy off so that it's the same height as everyone else. And I think that when people use that specific expression to refer to it, it's almost always pejorative, right? It's, it's, it's a complaint about the way that a a culture or a country like turns on its own. The the, prime example in New Zealand that was actually happening right when we lived there was the singer Lord. Lord's second album came out while we lived in New Zealand. It's an extremely good album. But at the time it came out, she gave a bunch of interviews sort of expressing her anger about government policies in New Zealand about the way that New Zealand was handling the refugee crisis. And many New Zealanders just became, just at that point, decided that she has become too famous and too big for her britches, and they, like, cut her out of their lives. And you did see that, to some extent, you know, on a smaller scale in family life. But I read it a little differently in New Zealand than I did in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. In New Zealand, the push against exceptionalism seemed to me to be very tied to a parental... Prioritization of independence. This idea that you want your kids to succeed or fail on their own merits and to push themselves when they're interested in something, but not to be pushed by you. And so that tied into a lot of what I saw in New Zealand with the physical independence that kids were given with the sort of benign neglect with which many parents told me they treated their kids on sort of a day-to-day basis. Like they would do things together, but when the kids were on their own, they were on their own and, and they were their lives were designed to give those kids a lot of space to be on their own. And in the schools, I saw that too. It wasn't so much a matter of, and this, you know, this might not be the case for older kids and my kids were only in schools for three months, so I obviously didn't see everything that there is to see. But in the schools, I didn't see kids being sort of, you know, chopped down if they were excelling in a way that made other kids uncomfortable. Um, I saw the school being very concerned with, like, growing a whole kid and being mostly unconcerned with academic achievement on the whole. And so there were some kids who were really good at some subjects, and that was great, but they weren't really treated any differently than kids who were struggling or who were mediocre in certain subjects. And the school itself was the schools themselves that my kids went to were not overly concerned with the academics at all. They were much more concerned with building a community inside the school, with teaching kids about the outside world, talking to them about the way that their school fits into the town and the community that they live in. And all those things seemed much more important. In the Netherlands... The tall poppy syndrome seemed much more the classic version of it that I've always heard about. And, and to me, an American, even as an American who frequently finds myself annoyed by how exceptional all my neighbors find their children. Which is crazy because my children are the only exceptional.
0: I was gonna actually. say, Dan, you yeah. cl- you let's let's be clear, your daughters it's, are exceptional. It, it's insane
1: that everyone thinks that their kids are so gifted when they pale in comparison to my kids.
0: I know it's so odd. Well, hey, yours get like special chapters, like they get highlighted, they get to have their own essays know, in your books.
1: So. I didn't let any other kids write part of my book. <laughs> but even as an American who often finds that like annoying, and who was who was doing this trip in part as a response to that. Mm. I found the Netherlands completely fucking insane. Like, (laughs) in the Netherlands, if your kid is gifted in math, you you know what the school does? If your kid's gifted in math, they take them out of math class so that they can fall back behind and be at the same level as everyone else. Because it would be very inappropriate for one child to be better at math than everyone else is. And that's crazy. Uh, And so it was remarkable to me to find myself really pushing up against the limits of my willingness to condemn the helicopter parenting that I've been Mm. witnessing and often participating in for years. Mm -hmm. Like, I I find that often awful in America, but yet when confronted by a country that is really going the extra mile to make sure that no (laughs) one excels, I just couldn't handle it. It, And, you know, it, it manifested in a lot of ways, In the kid's school and in Lyra's school in particular, as you read in the book, she just had a a truly awful time in that school. In part because of mistakes that we made, and in part because the school was just absolutely unwilling to do something different for a kid who was an an exception in that school. Right? She wasn't exceptional in that school in the sense of being smarter than other kids. In fact, she didn't even speak Dutch, Uh, but she was an exception. Because she couldn't handle the curriculum the way that they were doing it for various reasons, and they were not going to change the way that they were teaching that class for her, and she essentially broke that classroom. (laughs)
0: I was reading that section while my daughter would not stop bugging me. And I was like, well, so I have a six-year-old who is a, a littler version of Lyra. And I was like, I think Sabrina would definitely break the Netherlands as well. And I have a quote from you about your experience parenting, like your version of American parenting. and. And it's, I excelled at work. And then I went home to my excellent house and family and saw other people building more excellent houses all around us. They're Kumon tutored and travel baseballing offspring resetting the pace for all the other excellent kids. And so when you're in the Netherlands and you are. You know, really leaning into this other way of life, which is the complete opposite, obviously, of Kumon tutoring, because you're saying that if they're good at math, they get held back.
1: Yeah, if if they could do a small operation to make you slightly worse at math, they would do it.
0: I found it very confusing. And you also found it confusing. I wrote like notes in the book and then it was always fun because a paragraph later you would address what my question was, (laughs) which was really awesome. Like that that happens so rarely as a reader that you're like, but wait, what about? And then you'd be like, but wait, what about? Because in the classroom, they want a well-oiled machine and your daughter who does not speak the language it was the school was sold to you as a bilingual school it wasn't your daughter is you know extremely bright headstrong and she did not fit in as a cog in the machinery of the classroom right so can you tell our listeners what happens in that parent teacher conference and how do you think that children do excel in the Netherlands if they aren't you know if their special skills aren't cultivated
1: there's a dutch expression that i talk about in the book which i'm going to now say in dutch and mangle it it's doe maar dan doe je al gek genoeg what it means is act normal that's strange enough it's like it's like what makes dutch people dutch if you ask any dutchman what makes them dutch that's what they'll say it's, oh, we all act normal. Often it's shortened to just do, do it normal, do normal. That's like the Dutch national expression. <laughs> and in that parent-teacher conference at Lyra's school, we were confronted with teachers who didn't know how to deal with a particular kid and a kid who absolutely didn't know how to deal with her teachers and, and a kid who, as a result, Argued a lot in class, who would get, you know, take an order and then argue about it and sort of divert the class for 10 or 15 minutes or whatever while she sort of hashed through what she thought was wrong with the various things that teachers were doing. And that sort of upset this delicate balance that had been created in the classroom over the course of the year um, by the students and teachers coming to a mutual understanding of what the goals and purpose of the classroom were. And how it would work on a day to day basis, what the rules would be. Um, we came in at the end of the school year, and Lyra, who had not been part of those discussions as to what the purpose and rules of the classroom would be, and had not had you know had not bought into any of those ideas, and in fact couldn't participate in a lot of those things, challenged and fought those at every front. And I struggled, as you did, to figure out. Why her teachers did not want her to argue and debate when what I saw over and over again in Dutch life and in Dutch families was this willingness to talk over and chew over and debate (laughs) rules and ideas with kids, right? It's There's this this mode called the polder model, which takes hold in Dutch companies, in um, Dutch organizations, in Dutch government, and in Dutch families, which is based on... Before any decision is made or any plan is made in an organization, you get total buy-in from everyone in the organization. In a company, that means you don't, like, make a strategic move until even the janitors and the building say, yes, this is what we should do. In a family, it means you don't make rules for the family or make decisions about what's up without the kids participating in that discussion and everyone compromising, the parents moving and the kids moving to get to a middle ground. And... What I eventually came to realize is that in a Dutch company, for example, they will make a big strategic decision or they will propose a big strategic decision. The company will hash it out. They will get everyone to buy in on this decision, and then they will proceed. Once everyone has done that and they have proceeded along the path that they have chosen, it is very, very hard to divert that company from that path. Dutch companies do not prize the notion of being nimble the way that American companies do these days, like that is a foreign concept to Dutch organizations. Their goal is to make not necessarily the best decision, but definitely not the worst decision, but a pretty good decision that everyone is 100% behind and then just do that as long as possible. And so for Lyra coming into this school, which, oh, you know, over the first two months of the school year, those two teachers and all those students in that class, all those Dutch students, all with their... Mutual understanding of what a Dutch classroom typically is, what a normal Dutch classroom does, had debated out all the specific rules of the classroom, talked about what the schedule would be every day forever and how everything would work, and had come to that agreement and then we're following along that path. And then at the 11th hour, my kid comes in and says, basically, well, all these things are stupid and I hate them. Let's not do them. And there was no way for them to handle that.
0: It's so interesting to me because she was like the snowstorm, right. she was snowstorm for this classroom.
1: classroom. Right, except for that they didn't respond with like desperation in general. I think that the <laughs> teachers were made unhappy by the situation, but they didn't respond by like changing anything. That's a very undone well. That's thing interesting too, to do, right? It's that that's not right. what you do. And so the question of how kids become exceptional in the Netherlands is a pretty charged one because I don't think they do, or. Or rather, I think when kids don't fit into that system, I I think they become exceptions. And I talked to researchers who said that the the kids that the Dutch system fails are the ones who can't adapt to it for one reason or another. Maybe they're just willful or stubborn. Maybe they're neuroatypical. Or maybe they Mm -hmm. um, have some kind of disability that does not allow them to participate in that classroom in that way. And the Dutch education system from all I can tell and from all I heard from experts, does not handle kids well who fall outside the boundaries of what a like a typical quote unquote normal Dutch student does. And those are the kids who end up falling out of the system and struggling. What you don't necessarily see are kids like excelling and you know sort of going on to the like the academic accolades That American kids do. In fact, when you graduate from high school in the Netherlands, you actually have no idea what your class rank is in comparison to anyone else. They don't do that. You just have, you choose a path and a track and a school, and then you go to that college or you don't go to college, but you certainly have no idea how your grades compared to everyone else's in your school. No one knows
0: that. Mm. It it seems to me like children who are headstrong but very bright and, you know, clearly Lyra was reading constantly and she's a beautiful and hilarious writer herself from what I read in your book that she shares, that those kids are able to excel in American schools. But it does feel like in America that a lot of students who are neurodiverse you know, it, they do have such a difficult time in our education system as well. And I'm wondering if you think that, at least in the Netherlands, the parents would be better supported, the kids would be homeschooled, I'm assuming, but that they would, that at least society has a structure in place to better support the family unit.
1: I mean, that's definitely true in the sort of broader sense. I It's not clear to me how a homeschooling situation would work in the Netherlands, um, a country where there are very specific rules about your kids going to school. Those rules are very difficult mm. to bend. It's totally possible that the Netherlands has like a robust homeschooling situation or culture that I don't know mm. about and never interacted with, but I never met a single parent who had even considered homeschooling. And, oh, and Dutch schools have like really have draconian rules about your kids going to school, and so, for example, if you, you know, in America, you might take your kids out of school for a couple of days to go on a family trip or something. No one does that in the Netherlands. And in fact, if they see you in the airport with a kid on a school day, there are there are officials in Schiphol Airport whose job is to fine Dutch families for taking their children out of school because because they see them in the airport on a school day. Wow! And so, I mean, it's you know, they're they're <laughs> yeah. very. They Mm -hmm. are a rules-oriented culture, and it serves them very well in a lot of ways. Now, that is not to say that it's not possible that there are Dutch parents who have found a way around these sort of norms and do embrace homeschooling. I'm
0: sure I will hear from them. Right, yeah, absolutely. And I'd be really
1: interested to hear what you do hear about that. (laughs) Yeah, And I will say that you're right, that the broader cultural structure around parenting and family life, legally and socially, is way better in the Netherlands than it is in the United States, right? There's, I mean, the, you know, the sort of the unwillingness to be exceptional in the Netherlands manifests itself in pretty great ways in people's careers and jobs, right? Everyone just stops working at five and then they go home. And if you mm. stay late at work, it's not viewed as, as like you're being ambitious and it's great for the company Uh, your boss thinks that there's something wrong with you because you couldn't get your work done Mm -hmm. in the allotted time and so they might take you gently aside and say that you better stop doing that and so everyone gets home at like 5.15 on their bikes and all the kids Mm -hmm. go out and play and then every single Dutch kid comes inside at 6.15 and has dinner with their family and then they like have cozy Dutch family time and most moms mm-hmm. and dads get a day off each week that's their mama's dog or their papa's dog, their, mo- their mother's day or their father's day, that you're, you're just expected to spend that with your family. And that's pretty standard across most Dutch industries. And of course, there's like the, the greater, you know, the universal health care and the great social welfare net that helps catch families who are struggling. All those things are really conducive to like healthy and happy family lives. And I mm-hmm. would expect in a situation in any situation where you have a kid who's struggling and in one way, you have a lot of supports to help the family help that kid. But the kid is still growing up in a society where there's a very narrow conception of what being a Dutchman or Dutchwoman means and falling outside that conception is somewhat unheard of and unthinkable.
0: To wrap this up about exceptionalism, I found this past week, especially with both my girls out of school with this like disgusting. I'm so sorry. (laughs) With the blisters (laughs) all over their faces and hands. And the real struggle for me was it's like my own need and hunger for exceptionalism. Like I really wanted to have a great interview with you and. Most of, I'd say 90% of that is because my intention is to share your incredible journey with the world. And I'd say a good 10% is my own ego and need to do well or to get a gold star. And I find that to be in conflict constantly with the needs and desires of my children. My children keep getting in the way of my parenting podcast. (laughs) But I'm your next stop. Well, you, I'm going to just skip over Costa Rica because that seemed like a bust. I was laughing hysterically at your escapades there. I'm really sorry about the mosquito bites. You have a great quote about how you only want mosquito spray that'll <laughs> change your DNA. If possible, yeah, because yeah, we're having this problem actually in LA. Like the mosquitoes are just out of control, and I'm like nothing that yeah. is healthy yeah. works. Yeah. So for families is bullshit. message Off me. Offer families does nothing. Yeah. It doesn't work. None of it works. I have this other salve. None of it works. We have these huge welts. So now my children have the welts from hand, foot, and mouth, and they have the welts from the mosquitoes, (laughs) and we're, like, never going to get to go back to school. But your last stop was Kansas, and we spend a month in northern Michigan every year, every summer, because my husband's a screenwriter, so we're super lucky that we can be nomadic like that, and we get that small-town charm. Are Are you guys youpers? I Not that. No, nice. Tra- Traverse okay. City. There is something so beautiful and you captured it so brilliantly in your chapter about your experience in Kansas, like the, that small town feel and like how there are these stores. There's so many stores with knickknacks and things that you would <laughs> buy for Mother's Day that like nobody needs. And I just like my heart swelled reading it and it made me really miss the place. What was it like, Mr. Liberal, to, like, go immerse yourself in God country?
1: Uh, yeah, well, we were in Hayes, Kansas, a town that went 80% for Trump in the 2016 election. I'm delighted that you sparked, to that description of the stores and their, <laughs> like, like oh my God, novelty signs that say, like, bless this oh house God. and their funny yes. socks. Because, it, because those seemed... It really struck me while we were in Hayes how much the town defined itself and took pride in defining itself in its small townness. Like that those stores existed because it had this idea of itself as a small town that people would come visit to get a taste of small town life, much as I was doing. Mm. That the mayor would keep talking about how great it was to live in a small town like this and then owned a wine bar that would just play John Cougar Mellencamp songs about small towns all the time. Um, And it was fascinating to see that because I don't, you know, I don't actually, for all that I complain about Arlington, I don't actually think that Arlingtonians like define themselves in that way by the place that they live, maybe to their detriment. Maybe it would be better for the places, you know, the coastal elites, if we really did think of our communities in that way and thought a lot about how we how we portrayed ourselves to those who came from the outside, but going to Hayes, you know, a a place where one goal of mine was to think about this kind of American divide uh, and and talk about it with people was pretty instructive for a bunch of reasons. One of which was that no one wanted to talk to me about that divide, um, you know, and I can't say I blame them. Like it was it was not a, a secret to them where I stood on the issue. Uh, and and the the Kansan approach is to basically sort of gently deflect uh, any possible conflict in the conversation and maintain a position of, of niceness, as I saw, uh, I you know, through anything, you know, come hell or high water, they are going to be nice to you. And in a lot of ways that made our time there really pleasant. Like we made friends and our kids had a good time and everyone was nice to us and we and we were accepted generally everywhere we went. But that niceness also served to shield us and to shield the people we met from the things about that town that didn't work for some people. The ways, for example, that, that Latino or Latina or African-American students at the local university in a town that was like 90-some percent white felt excluded and, in fact, were profiled in those very cute shops on Main Street that sold all the knickknacks. Mm-hmm. And whenever they would bring that up, the response from the white people in Hayes would be, well, that can't be true. We're, we're just nice to everyone. And watching niceness be sort of wielded as both shield and weapon against the, the very things that I was worried were sort of like tearing the country apart was frustrating, even as we, a nice white family there for three months, benefited from it like every day.
0: Mm -hmm. I know you got you even put on a play. I know
1: I got to put on it like, you know, they were just like, hey, you want to come Harper? You want to come be in this play? Dan, you want to be the director? Hey, you guys want to come sing karaoke? Uh, We're having a games night. You want to come? They were unbelievably welcoming in ways that were like gratifying and 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 very heart opening to me, but there was always this sense that there was a gulf that no one was ever going to address. And, you know, I, again, I complain a lot about Arlington. One problem we don't have in Arlington is people being afraid to talk through politics and talk through their differences. In fact, people are talking through them so much that sometimes they're like divorcing their friends because of them, but at least you're not ignoring them, right?
0: Hmm. Mhm. It it reminds me a little bit about the classroom situation in the Netherlands and and even the at the whole beginning of this journey with your own family it's almost like you you were looking for or you know correct me but it the you were looking for a place where there was like a structure that felt super solid but it kind of seems like everywhere you go everything is set up in a way where if you push too hard on it it's it starts to go haywire. Yeah. If you bring up politics in Kansas, they weren't going to have those conversations. Right. But if
1: we live there permanently, I mean the choice is either to just give up on ever having those conversations or ever addressing mm-hmm. these things that seem wrong with the community you live in or like being right. the guy who's always talking about that stuff and everyone knows crazy Dan's always going to yell at you about Trump. And like, that doesn't seem great. But yet at the same time, it was like very heartening to see, you know, I think I write about this in the book that the, the one real takeaway of that was that it does seem to me that the underreported story about middle America is not really like the Republican, you know, the economically anxious Republicans who voted for Trump who are not really a surprise, like Kansas has been Republican as long as Kansas has been Kansas. It's the progressives who are in those communities, who are those little blue islands in big red places, who have never gone away and who have been working really hard to make incremental progress in their communities and to fight those fights, to be those people who everyone says, oh, they... Such and such always talks about politics, Mm -hmm. which is a difficult place to put you in, to put yourself in. Mm -hmm. And we met those people in Hayes, and I was really heartened by them and by seeing the ways that they put forth their version of progressiveness, which was often very closely tied to their religion and their faith, into practice in their communities. And that was really, I mean, that was sort of the political lesson I came away with above all else
0: in visiting these four places and getting to spend some time there i imagine you took many lessons from all of them some of which you share in the book and i'm sure some that will you'll discover over the next several years of like how this truly impacted your family and then secondarily how putting out this book has you know impacted your family i i am envious of the year that you were able to spend being present with your children before they got too old to give a shit about you. (laughs) Um, And there's this beautiful quote you have towards the end that's, for that year, we each got to be the scaffold around which the others grew. And I thought that was so beautiful. And it feels to me like you, you know, you found what you were looking for, which was your own family system. That works where you are able to, where you could find that growth, where you could support each other's own exceptionalism, but that you are also supporting one another. And I really love how you use the word scaffold. You share that at the beginning of the book that your father has dementia. And, you know, so many of us are in the sandwich generation and we're caring for parents and caring for our children at the same time. And you mentioned that your dad was that you don't have these memories with him as a kid because you you know you say that he was heading towards divorce and and maybe you just weren't as present as well as a kid you were focused on your own things but that you wanted to have these memories with your girls at this age that that was very important for you and I'm wondering you know in closing what is the memory you know of this entire experience like what is the one that you you hope you'll be able to hold on to for the longest
1: oh man. I mean, all of them, but,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I mean, there's a, there's a little story I tell about a really bad day in Costa Rica, um, that turned good at the end a day where I was just awful to Halia, to my wife, cause I was feeling very grumpy and upset about how the trip was going and she calls me on it and I, and I, that I feel bad about how awful I was um, and I'm like a dick to my kids. Um, but then at the end of it, we, Harper and I have this moment out riding bikes on the beach outside our house in a beautiful sunset. And we have just like one of those mini conversations you have with kids where you, where they really surprise you with um, how in tune they are emotionally to exactly how you're feeling. And that day is something I would like to keep with me. And I hope I keep with me. Not only that beautiful moment at the end, but also the bad stuff, like one lesson of this trip was that the the bad stuff matters too, and that finding a way to talk to each other and be together through the bad stuff matters, as Alia said on that day, like sometimes it's okay if things are bad. And the point is that the four of us are surviving that bad thing together, that To me, that day seemed most emblematic of uh, what the experience of doing the trip was like and how in the two years since the trip, we have sort of incorporated its larger lessons into our lives.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dan, for sharing this once-in-a-lifetime journey with us. I won't be doing it anytime soon, but I really... (laughs) (laughs) But I loved getting to thank you for the great escape that you gave me this week while my children drove me absolutely insane.
1: I'm so glad you survived your torturous week. Good, good luck catching up in the coming week.
0: Hopefully I won't get it.
1: <laughs> thanks.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, you can get How to Be a Family, the year I dragged my kids around the world to find a new way to be together wherever books are sold. Special thanks to our production assistant, Olivia Hasty our sound engineer, Owen O'Neill, and for our original music by Jeremy Turner. Wherever you listen, if you enjoy us, please share with friends and give us a little shout out on Instagram. DM me, you know, something appropriate. All right. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate it. That was awesome.
1: Oh, that was lovely. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. You do get a gold star for this interview. Yes! (laughs) Okay, thank you.